Okay, this is our third week in a series that we have been in, um, walking through a single chapter of the Bible. Um, we are taking uh, the month of September to just slowly digest one of my favorite chapters, which is Romans chapter 12. And we're going to get there in just a couple of minutes, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans 12. There should be a Bible in front of you in the pew if you didn't bring one. We'll get there in a second. A couple of years ago, um, I was having a beer with a guy who had recently joined my life group. Sorry, soda with a guy who had recently joined my life group. And, uh, and this was a really great guy. He was, he was funny. He was interesting. He was clever. He was actually a stand-up comic, comic. And so um, we were having a good time just enjoying each other's company, making small talk sort of in search of common interests. And then there, there came this lull in the conversation. And after a moment, he paused and he said, man, I'm starting to think it's impossible to make friends after 40. Which is like a, it was like a surprising statement to hear somebody say out loud. Now, as somebody who is much, much younger than 40, <laughs> um, I couldn't relate. I didn't understand. But th this guy, I mean, what was surprising about it is this guy was hilarious. He was interesting. He was sort of the, the life of the party everywhere he went. He lit up the room. And it seemed like everybody liked him. And yet, in this moment of confession, he said that he was very lonely. That maybe he never felt out of place wherever he went, but he hadn't found a place to belong. And this friend of mine was locating his pain, or this like discontent, this disillusionment in a lack of friendship. And I think many, many people are walking around with this sort of same disappointment in their lives. Maybe attributing it to a lack of friendship or maybe something else. Sociologists today, they identify basically four components for people to live a satisfactory, happy life, you know, one that feels fulfilled. The first thing that you need to have a fulfilled life, according to sociologists, is a close circle of friends. Um, people who know you, that you feel safe with, a confidant or someone that you can share the real stuff of life with. The second component to a satisfied life is a family that the people that you belong to and are connected to beyond just sort of common interests, um, people that you'd share your life with. For many, of this, for many of us, this is literally our nuclear family, the people that we share a home with, while others of us have to find those relationships somewhere else. The third component of a happy life is meaningful work. And this has nothing to do with how much money you make or what kind of status you have in your job. It's really about feeling like you make a meaningful contribution in the world. And the fourth thing that you need is a belief system that helps you to make sense of the world and the hard questions, particularly around suffering um, and death. And so these four components... These are the things that sort of make up what is just traditionally considered a good life. And when I think back to that conversation with my friend, and honestly dozens of other conversations that I've had with other people in the years since, there are so many people in the world and in the church who feel a serious lack in their lives in one or more of these life-building blocks. And in our American culture today, there is sort of a hollowing out of each of these components Statistics are showing that, um, that rates of friendship have cut in half in recent years. In fact, Robert Putnam, the guy who wrote that book, Bowling Alone, he says that 40% of American adults have zero to one confidant. No wonder so many of us need therapy. 
Simultaneously, the value of the nuclear family is being, is being cut down. Marriage rates are dropping. People having children are dropping. And people are becoming more and more alienated from the place where they grew up. Many people's jobs, they feel less tangible. And the meaning of their work is increasingly obscured. And then, of course, secularism, the, the sort of common narrative in the world today, offers little to no answers for the reality of suffering and pain in the world. And so I'm convinced that now more than ever, people need hope. We need the hope that there is another way to live that can lead to a life of real satisfaction, of actual happiness. And I'm confident that even in this room this morning, there are many people who are feeling the gaps in their relationships, maybe even the ache of loneliness. Now, as bleak as that sounds, here is my conviction. I actually believe that the church is the hope of the world. Like, I am this crazy optimist in being fully aware of all of the brokenness of the American church. I still believe that Jesus' church is the antidote to the disillusionment that so many people are feeling. Because the church, when the church is being the church, it's a place where all people can find belonging and friendship. The church is a place where the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and the outcast can find a place of family. The church is where gifts and passions and skills can be used for a higher purpose, the kingdom of God. And the church, it gathers around the life and the teachings of Jesus, who teaches us a way of living that makes sense of even our hardest and most painful moments. And so what we are talking about here is the call for the church to be an alternative community in a world of loose connections. I love how John Tyson describes it in his book, A Creative Minority. He says that we are a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And that, my friends, is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. We are all longing for a place where we can belong and a place where we can contribute. And that is honestly like what we mean when we talk about the value of community. You see, community, it's not just a group of people who like to get together for happy hour, hanging out on a regular basis. Community is not just sort of like a bunch of well-meaning acquaintance type relationships where you generally like to see each other but doesn't really go much deeper than that. No, when we live into community, we, we are living into belonging, bringing our whole selves to the body, and that we find our place of contribution as we share the gifts and the passions and the experiences and the energies that God has given us to share. Basically, what this whole thing boils down to is that we all need a job and a friend. Like, that's the secret to not just sort of living this fulfilled life, but really doing this thing that God has appointed us to do as the church, which finally brings us to Romans chapter 12. We've been in this for a couple of weeks now, and I'm just going to paraphrase where we've been over the last couple of weeks. In verse 1, Paul says, essentially, in light of the gospel, in light of the good news of Jesus' salvation for all people through his death and resurrection, I urge you, I am calling you to offer your bodies, your whole being, your appetites and your sexuality and your physicality and your aging, yes, even your sickness and your suffering, to offer it as a living sacrifice, holy or set apart and pleasing to God. And this, my friends, is how you worship. 
He goes on, he says, don't be shaped by the world's values or demands, but instead be transformed by rewiring the way that you think and the way that you see things. Learn to see with a kingdom perspective, and then you will be able to live into God's will in every single situation. You will have the mind of Christ in a world that doesn't know how to discern up and down and right and wrong and good and bad. Now, if you notice in these first two verses that we've been in the last couple of weeks, there is a metaphor that Paul uses here for God's people. He calls us brothers and sisters. He refers to the church as not just a, some loose relationships, but that we are actually a family, that we are, we are a family with God as our father. And this is beautiful for each one of us, because some of us come from really beautiful expressions of family. And it's a gift that we have these connections with people who we love and who love us. But for many of us, we don't have those kind of friendship or those kind of family relationships. Some of us have no one that we belong to. And no matter how alone you feel or no matter what kind of family that you are from, that here in the church, you are loved and welcomed as a son or as a daughter. You are appreciated and valued as a brother or a sister in the family of God. You have been adopted into God's family, and therefore none of us ever need be alone. Isn't that great news? And then in verse 3, Paul shifts to another metaphor for the church. And this is where we're going to camp for the rest of our morning. Um, so go ahead and look at it with me. Paul writes... For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is given, giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so here we see that Paul shifts from the metaphor of the church being a family and instead gives us a new metaphor that we are like a body. And that we're like this body that is unified as a whole, but that it's made up of lots of different kinds of members. And as Paul is pivoting to this metaphor, notice that he introduces this with a call for humility. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The word that's used here for grace is the Greek word charis. And it's a word that more literally is translated gift. It's the same root word that he uses later in this chapter for sort of the gifts that are given by God for the rest of the church. So what Paul is saying here is that he's speaking from his grace. He's speaking from his gift, the gift that God has apportioned to him as a leader in the body of Christ. And he calls us to look at ourselves with a renewed mind, seeing ourselves in proper size and shape according to how God made us, which is the heart of humility. You see, humility is not thinking lower or lesser of yourself. Humility is seeing yourself according to how God sees you. 
It's rejecting both pride and disgrace or shame. It's living into neither being too lowly nor thinking of yourself too highly. Uh, The famous quote uh, that is often wrongfully attributed to C.S. Lewis, uh, though it's still helpful, is that humility is is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Again, not C.S. Lewis. Rick Warren wrote that in his book, and he was wrong. All right. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Uh, And so in humility, we see ourselves as part of a larger whole, that each of us is not complete in and of ourselves, but rather each of us plays a crucial role in the rest of the life of our community. Now, when you think about humility or when you think about pride, when you think about sort of having a sober estimation of yourself, the the easy and natural place to go to in light of especially a world that is driven by celebrity in the church is, is thinking that like, you know, somebody who is not being humble thinks that they're just so great, that their gift is so amazing, that everybody should make way for my for me to, to, to perform my gift in front of all of the people. And that is one expression of sort of the lack of humility we see in the church today. But as I was praying and reflecting this week, and as I was, I was kind of giving the Lord my heart around this, this verse, God started to highlight an area of real pride and lack of sober judgment in my life. Pr- pride does not look like me thinking that... Um, I'm really that entertaining or everybody's interested in what I have to say. But pride can very subtly look more like me saying, the world depends on you. You have to do all the things. If you don't, then everything is going to fall apart. Everybody's counting on you, Zach. Don't let it drop. That's another 23-year-old reference. Sorry, everybody. So this is how we approach humility in the church. And then Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Just like your body is a unified being that's made up of lots of different parts an arm and a leg, a nose and a tongue this is the way that God has designed the church that we are one body with many members, we are many functions with one shared life. And it is the diversity of the members of the body that actually calls us into greater humility. Because if some of us are like eyes and others of us are like toes, then what sense would it make for us to compare our function to somebody else's function? And, each, and if each of us is only a small part of this body dependent upon each other, then why wouldn't we want or hope for all of the other functions to work properly and to be fully who they are designed to be? And then look at the second half of verse 5 here. He says that in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all of the others. Say that word, belongs. My friends, we belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. We belong to Jesus. We all belong. And the power of this word for belonging, I think, is a direct kick in the teeth to the two concepts that seek to, de- that seek to deteriorate the church in America today. Autonomy and consumerism. 
And I believe that autonomy and consumerism in the church are two cancers that God is going to war with. Autonomy, meaning I am my own person. It's just me and Jesus. I don't have to be accountable. I am the master of my own destiny. You, are, you exist to help me become more who I'm supposed to be before God, and that's all that I need. Or consumerism, that the church exists to feed me, to serve my preferences, to recognize my unique gifts. And the moment that I am no longer feeling like I'm getting what I think that I need, I'll just bounce and go to the next place. And Jesus says, no. He says, we belong to each other. We are fitted together as a body and we're dependent on each other to become everything that God is calling us to be. Which is why we don't just dip as soon as things get hard. It's why we don't just sort of like fade out when things aren't working for us. We work through difficulties and conflicts and pain. We bless each other as God calls us into new things. We belong to each other. And so our commitment to community as a church here at Vancouver Vineyard is about everyone belonging and also everyone contributing. And so as members of Christ's body, we each contribute according to the gifts that God has put in us. And you see up there, the next slide, uh, the, the passage, it has a little list of all of these different gifts. Now in the New Testament, there are three primary pa passages that describe what we commonly call the gifts of the Spirit that are at work in the church. The first of those uh, passages is in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's a, which is a parallel passage to what we read here in Romans 12, and it describes what the church often calls spiritual gifts. It's similar to the list that we have here. And then there is Romans 12, which is what we're in today. And then there is another passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about five leadership roles in the church that are apportioned uh, as gifts for the body of Christ. And so when we look at these different passages sort of parallel to each other, we see that there are nuances in how the gifts of the Spirit work in the church. And so here in the vineyard, uh, in our movement, we talk about these three functions as gracelets, gifts, and offices. Okay, did I lose anybody? Let's, let's just talk about it for a minute. Gracelets is, is this idea that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it's talking about what we commonly call spiritual gifts, uh, the word that's used there is the Greek word pneumatikos. And it's more literally translated as spirituals or stuff that the Spirit does. And so Paul, he writes this, he says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the, that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each just as he determines. It's really cool. Like, that sounds like a pretty epic Sunday morning, right? where all of these things happen. Some of you, sounds like a terrifying Sunday morning. That's okay. What we read here is that Paul calls this a list of the manifestations of the Spirit, which means that this is the stuff that happens when the Holy Spirit uh, you know, comes upon normal people. And in this list, we don't see so much that God apportions to each person their own unique superpower. So that's like prophecy guy, that's like healing guy, 
and, and so on, but rather that as people yield themselves to the Spirit of God, God starts to do stuff through them. What we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that anyone can be used by God in any way. That each person who is sitting in this room this morning can be used by God to do all of this stuff. To get a word of prophecy, to share a message of wisdom, to speak in other languages, to lay hands on sick people and see them healed. In the language of the vineyard, we believe that Everyone gets to play. This is for all of us. And we call these manifestations of the Spirit gracelets. They're gifts that God gives through ordinary people, and anyone can be used in any way, at any time, as we yield ourselves in obedience to Jesus. And then we see here in Romans 12, gifts that the Spirit, that, that, uh, gifts of the Spirit. And in Romans 12, these are more described as abilities or passions or anointings that God gives to individuals in the church. So while Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, yes, anyone can give a word of prophecy, but some people are specifically gifted in a way where they give words of prophecy on a regular basis. That everyone in the church is called to serve, but some people are uniquely gifted with a servant's heart. That each of us are invited to teach or to encourage other people, but some of us are called to teach or to encourage. Everyone is commanded by Jesus to give generously of their finances, but there are some in the church who are gifted with an extravagant generosity. That everyone can lead in certain ways or everyone can show mercy, but some are gifted to lead and show mercy in sort of a unique way. So 1 Corinthians 12 says that everyone can give gracelets, but Romans 12 shows that each of us will be given specific gifts or abilities or even just personalities, and that each of us are to function within the gifts that God gives us. That if you are an eye in the body, we need you to do eye stuff. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 4, there are five leadership gifts that God has given to the church. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, which is a teaching for another time about what all of those things mean. But essentially, these are five different types of leaders, and that the job of these leaders is to equip the church, to equip the saints, to do the stuff that Jesus commands us to do. And we call these roles offices, for lack of a better word. So a gracelet. Anyone can be used at any time to do anything by the power of the Holy Spirit. Gift, you have been given a particular ability and passion within the body to function in a particular way. Office, a few people are specifically called by God to lead the church and to equip the saints to do the stuff. How are we doing? You guys still with me? Okay. So back to Romans 12. We read Paul say that God gives gifts to the church through his people, that some people will prophesy, meaning that they will receive impressions from the Holy Spirit to share with others and to share with the church and to sometimes to share with individuals, that some people have a gift of serving, some people have a gift of teaching, while others are, are encouragers, some people are gifted with a special level of generosity, some people are leaders, and some people are merciful. And the list that Paul gives here is not exhaustive. It's meant to only be a sampling of the kind of things that are at work within God's people. And there are loads of other stuff that could be included in this list. Other gifts are things like administration, evangelism, pastoral care, counseling, 
if you're a musician, that's a gift. Um, prayer or intercession, exhortation, um, artistic ability and performance, hospitality, gifts of wisdom. And that each of us are given particular gifts by God to be used to serve the rest of the body. And each of us, are, he also says that each of us are be, being given measures of grace alongside our gifts. And the call of God is for every one of us to bring our full selves to the church and to offer everything that God has given us as a living sacrifice, while also being humble enough to know that my grace may be different than your grace. My abilities might be look different than another person's. My capacity may not be the same as someone else. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a story of a wealthy man who has this group of servants, and he brings this group of servants before him as he's getting ready to go on this trip, and that he gives them each of them um, a, an amount of money that they're supposed to invest while he's away. And so he gives the first servant five bags of gold, he gives the next servant two bags of gold, and he gives the last servant one bag of gold. And then he disappears and he, and he leaves them to use what he has given them uh, to, to invest it and to, and to grow it. And so when he comes back, he discovers that the first guy who had five bags of gold, that he had doubled the investment and he praises him, well done, that's amazing, good job. Then the next guy who only had two bags of gold, he doubled it and it was still praiseworthy. I mean, the, the second guy, he doubled his money and still had less than what the first guy started with. And, and the, the servant says, or the master says, that's awesome, well done. But the third servant, he didn't invest the money. It says that he buried it. And when the master came home, he dug it out again and brought this like dirty bag of gold and said, here, I kept it safe for you. It, nothing is missing. Aren't you happy? And it says that the master was greatly displeased because the guy didn't invest what he was given. He buried it. And so we, like these servants... We've all been given gifts from God. And his call to each and every one of us is to put these gifts to work, to invest his gifts into other people. And like these servants, we also all vary in how much we are given. You have been given a gift, but the gift is not for you. It's for others. It's a gift that's meant to come through you to bless and encourage and support other people. The gift that you carry is God's gift to the church and the world, not just for you. And then we see that each of us have also been given a measure of grace. And your measure may be smaller or larger than other people's. And I think that that's like really what, what, what I want us to come away with today. That we all belong and that we all have something to contribute. That we all have gifts, but we also all have measures of grace. And sometimes your grace is small for lots of different reasons. Maybe your, your grace is small because you're just still growing in your gifts. You haven't yet learned how to function in the ways that God has gifted you. It's okay to start small. Sometimes your grace is limited because of a season of life. Like maybe you're in a difficult stretch as a grad student, or maybe you're a new parent, um, and, and you just don't have the ability or the time or the energy or even just like the brain capacity to be able to do the things that God has given you to do. Sometimes your grace is limited by the state of your soul. Like when we find ourselves mired in sin or disconnected from God or maybe walking through a really dry season, it can limit our abilities to be able to use our gifts. 
Others might find themselves in a season of life where you have even more capacity, more grace than you ever thought you would, would be possible. Like maybe you're an empty nester and you suddenly have like a little bit of space and margin to be able to give a little bit more of yourself. Maybe you have planned well financially that you have more than enough and God is enabling you to be able to grow in generosity through your finances towards the church or towards other people. Maybe you just maybe it's just coming home from a conference or something and you're feeling like you're really filled up with excitement and passion for the Holy Spirit and God's saying like I've get, this is an extra measure of grace to go and to give it away to others. And whether we find ourselves with uh, overflowing with gifts and grace or if we feel dry and limited, God's invitation to every single one of us is to bring what you have and to offer it to him. Because he is the one who can do exceedingly above anything we ask or imagine through the humble offering of us giving ourselves to him. My friends, you belong here. You are needed here. You are loved and welcome in this church. We are a family, and we pray that your experience here is that you experience a love of family, that regardless of what you do or you don't bring, you belong here. But belonging is only the first half of the invitation. The other half is to contribute. It's bringing all of yourself and sharing everything that you have with others. And what we see, like just true in the human condition, is that you will find satisfaction that your soul is longing for through giving yourself away. Yesterday was the first day of fall, which I know for some of you is exciting. Pumpkin spice and all that good stuff, right? Uh, the rest of us are in denial. And, uh, and with fall comes the realization that the holidays are right around the corner. And what I love most about the holidays is that family meals become like the most epic potlucks of the year. Because holiday meals is where everyone brings their best to Thanksgiving or to Christmas dinner. And each person, they bring what they can according to their grace. So there's always somebody, you know, in, in the holiday family tradition who has like the big grace. They're the one who makes the main dish. You know, they're the one who spends a whole week cleaning the house, setting up tables, preparing the turkey for dinner. Then there's a whole bunch of us that are medium grace people. You know, we bring a good salad, you know, maybe some sides. Maybe we go so far as to, to bake a pie for dessert or something. Then there's the small grace people. I'll bring rolls. You can count on me. I've got the rolls, I'll even bring a drink. And then there are people like one of my cousins who always brings a single can of olives. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> what we are doing here, what we are called to be as a church is like this family dinner. And the question is, what has God given to you to bring to the table? Like, just just imagine with me what it could look like for a few hundred humble followers of Jesus who bring all of themselves to God as a living sacrifice and pours out what they have for other people. Like imagine a church where we don't sort of sit down in rows and we watch a couple of key people use their gifts for like our entertainment or something like that. But instead we all come ready to give what we have. 
whether it's a word of encouragement to somebody who's struggling, whether it's $20 cash to someone who's in need, whether it's a hug for someone who needs the hug, whether it's a word of prophecy, you heard something from the Lord, whether it's instruction and teaching and exhortation, hey, I see this in you, you could be this, I, I believe in it. Maybe what the gift that you have is just invitation. Hey, come along with me. Something compelling is happening over here. Do you want to be a part of it? That's the kind of church that I think we all dream of, right? Because the former is just not that interesting. I've got news for you. Everything on Netflix is more interesting than what you're watching this morning. <laughs> but that's not what we're here for. We're here for something really deep and meaningful, and it requires all of us bringing all of ourselves to share with everyone. And so before we move into ministry, I want, I'm going to pray for us. And I just want to make space for God to speak to each of us because here's the truth. We need you. We need you. We need the things that God has put in you. I, I would go so far as to say that my trust in God's sovereignty is that anything that, any need that exists within this room, God has brought people and gifts and resources within this room to be able to meet. Like, I, that's just my theology of the Bible. Whatever it is that you come in carrying, I'm pretty confident someone in this room is able to help you. And that you have something to give to someone else who needs. And then, of course, look, this would be, I would fail at my job if I didn't also say, we need Alpha volunteers. We need kids ministry volunteers. We need people who care about our teenagers and want to volunteer in the youth group on Wednesday nights. We have real things that we are trying to do that we need more help with, and we would love to plug you in. But in addition to those spaces, we need the creativity and the passion that God has given you for the world out there. What are the dreams that are percolating in this room that haven't been expressed yet? What are the desires that you carry to do something meaningful in the community? We want to join in with your dream. Bring all of ourselves. You belong here. You have something to give. Amen?